All right, good morning, everyone. So we are now in our fourth week in our Genesis series. And to help put things in context real quick, this is a recap of where we've been so far. In the first week, we talked about chapter one, the creation of the heavens and the earth. And if there was a question that this chapter was seeking to answer, I would say it was, where did the heavens and the earth come from? And then last week, we talked about Genesis chapter 2, which is the creation of humanity. And we identified the, the question that that chapter was seeking to answer as, what is God's design for human life? And this week, I hope you're all in a good mood, because we're going to be talking about Genesis chapter 3, which is all about sin. Um, and if there is a question that this chapter is seeking to answer, I would say the question is, why is the world so messed up? And uh, the answer, of course, is sin. Now, as you may notice when we read the passage, uh, the word sin doesn't actually appear, uh, but the concept is implied because this is the story of humanity's first disobedience against God. And it's a story of the profound results of that disobedience. But what I want us to notice is it's not just a story of something that happened in the past, but it's also a story of something that happens in our present over and over again. The tagline for this series is finding the present in the beginning. And I think if we look at this story, thinking not just about a story about Adam and Eve, but thinking of it also as a story about ourselves, we can find ourselves in it because we, like Adam and Eve, fall into disobedience for many of the same reasons that they did. So last, like last week, we're going to take this passage piece by piece because it's kind of a big passage, and we're going to talk about the insights that it has to offer us on sin, and specifically in three ways. Because Genesis 3 gives us insights into what leads us to sin, into the consequences of sin, and into the remedy for sin. What leads us to sin, the consequences of sin, and the remedy for sin. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Genesis chapter 3, right where we left off last week. Uh, let me say a quick prayer for us. Lord, I pray that as we go through this uh, heavy and challenging passage, that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us insight. I pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate parts of it, uh, parts of it that you want to speak uh, to us through. Uh, I pray, Lord, that you would call to mind uh, situations and circumstances in each individual's heart uh, that these words apply to. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. All right. Now, this is the section of the story that I think gives us some really good insight into what leads us into sin. 
And the first insight it gives is a simple one, and it's one that I admit sounds a little superstitious in our modern context. Um, but the first insight is, what leads us into sin? The influence of the devil. The story of human sin begins with this kind of enigmatic character called the serpent, right? The snake. Now, this is clearly not any ordinary snake. For one thing, it talks. I've never met a talking snake. I'm sure you haven't either. And it talks because it is a physical mouthpiece for a supernatural being uh, who you or I would call the devil or Satan. And if you have any doubts about this, that this is who the serpent is, uh, there's a very interesting passage in the last book of the Bible, Revelation, uh, that says, the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. So there's a reoccurring theme throughout scripture. Uh, sometimes it seems to lay dormant for a little while, but it, it's there in the beginning and it's there at the end and it reoccurs throughout and especially appears in the gospels. This reoccurring theme that there is an evil being who wants to lead the world astray and specifically wants to lead you and I astray. And this is the first place that this evil being appears as a talking snake. Now, you may be wondering, okay, well, did this really happen? Do I really have to believe in a talking snake? That's, that's really strange. Um, well, I have, I have two, two answers to that question. One, I don't see why it's too out there, you know, because if we're willing to accept the idea that there is a supernatural enti entity, an evil being who has power to influence in the world, then it seems entirely possible to me that 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 being could possess an animal and speak through it if he wanted to. Uh, so that's a possibility. It's also possible that uh, this story is using the image of a snake as a symbol for this being uh, of Satan or the devil, um, and that it was not literally a snake uh, when uh, the fall of humanity happened, um, but it serves as a symbol within the context of this story. So, Two possibilities. But I would say if, if it really bothers you that there's a talking snake, just don't get, don't get hung up on it because either way, whether you see the snake as a symbol or not, the main point here is that there is a supernatural being who is bent on destroying humanity. Okay, that is the thing you have to take away from this. I don't know how you get around that, and especially within the context of scripture as a whole. Now you might ask, if you're anything like me, okay, what was the beginning of sin for the snake, right? <laughs> it's like, this is supposed to be the story of sin entering the world. Well, obviously sin in some sense already exists in the creation because there's this snake that's trying to lead people astray. Well, Genesis doesn't tell us that story. So if we want an answer to that, we don't really find it here. Uh, but you may remember that last week I made the point that one of the things that Genesis 2 teaches us about God's design for humanity is that God seems to want human beings to have the freedom to reject his law. Not because he actually wants us to reject his law, but because he wants us to freely choose to obey him. And he wants to give us the dignity of that choice, which is why he presents Adam and Eve with this, this, uh, this rule of you, you you have all these trees that you can eat from, but there's this one that you can't eat from. He's giving them the dignity 
of that choice. And so I would assume that if God values that that much with human beings, it's entirely possible that he has valued that with other beings, such as angelic beings. And one being in particular, it appears, uh, misused the freedom that God had given him and has encouraged others to misuse the freedom that God had given him and encourages us, uh, both in the past and today, to misuse our freedom as well. The ancient serpent. Now again, I realize okay, that in our modern society, this sort of talk can sound uh, naive or superstitious, but you know, whether it sounds silly or not, it is such a critical part of the Bible's view of the world. It's there in the beginning, it's there at the end, and it runs throughout the whole thing. And I really think if we are going to have an accurate view of reality, we have to uh, trust that, that this is part of it, you know, that there is this, this evil being. We and God are not the only players in the drama that is going on in the world. Now, this doesn't mean that we should see every uh, bad thing that happens or every negative thought that we have as somehow due to the direct influence of the devil. Uh, we don't need to see a demon behind every bush. Uh, but we should be conscious that this evil being, this evil force exists and is uh, working in the world to cause destruction. Uh, and the proper response to that force and any forces that assist him is not to be fascinated and obsessed with him. It's not to be overly fearful and scared. The proper response is to rule over him. Now, let me explain that. You may remember that uh, over the last couple weeks, I've emphasized this idea that when human beings were created, they were given what's called the creation mandate. And part of the creation mandate was to fill the earth, subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every creature that moves along the ground. And what do we see here in Genesis 3, right after, not long after this creation mandate has been given? A creature that moves along the ground shows up and tries to rule over human beings, right? But instead of human beings responding in the appropriate way and saying, no, no, I'm not listening to you, and putting the snake in its place, the human being ends up being ruled over. And I, if you ask me, I think that's one of the reasons that this story presents the devil as a snake, because we know it's a, it's a way of saying the human being was supposed to rule over this creature, but ended up ruling over, being ruled over instead. So the proper response is to rule over, which means when we encounter influence from the devil or any of his forces, uh, when we hear the serpent's voice that says, did God really say? The appropriate response is, in the power of the, of the Holy Spirit, to rule over that and say, I will not be influenced by you. So we need to be careful what we allow to influence us. Second insight, if you're taking notes, number two, second insight the story gives us into what leads us into sin is others mocking what God has said. Others mocking what God has said. The serpent says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And what I want us to notice is that the serpent is not trying to get Eve to doubt that God actually said that. Because if that was what he was trying to do, as soon as the, serp as soon as the woman replies and says, well, yeah, that's essentially what God told us, 
then the serpent's ne next response would be, oh, no, no, you, you, you misunderstood him. Or maybe you misheard him. You might need to have your hearing checked. Right? But that's not what he says. Right? He says, you will not surely die. Um, he flat out contradicts God. And so, you know, instead of reading this first line that the serpent says in a quizzical way, like, did God really say that you should not eat from any tree in the garden? I think we need to hear him saying it like, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Psh, that God, <laughs> you will not surely die. Come on. There's a mocking tone to it. See, a lot of the time, not all of the time, but a lot of the time, when we fall into sin, we don't do it because we think that God's okay with it. Uh, we don't do it because we think we misheard or misunderstood God. We, we're more likely to do it because we're in an environment where God's ways are, are mocked, where they're looked down on. Psh, that's ridiculous. You know, you know that voice. The Bible says that. Seriously, you believe that? You're not going to cheat even just a little bit to get ahead in your business? I mean, come on, everybody does it. Like, seriously? Come on. Serpent's goal is not to get Eve to question that God actually said that. The serpent's goal is to get Eve to think God is wrong, to get Eve to think that he's stupid or foolish, um, that the rule is ridiculous. And one of the reasons I want us to notice that difference, this difference is important. One of the reasons I want us to notice it is because there are some people who act as if every time somebody asks the question, did God really say that they are asking a, a satanic question, that they're doing something wrong. If you ask that question with the right spirit, did God really say? If you genuinely want to know, that's a good question to ask. Like, I encourage you guys to ask that question. Because sometimes when we don't ask that question thoughtfully and sincerely, we end up accepting, blindly accepting interpretations of the Bible that are not actually correct. Um, you know, if somebody comes to you and says, uh, you know, the Bible says that it's good to uh, have multiple wives. The Bible says that polygamy is good. A good response to that is, wait, did God really say? That's a good, healthy response that is not the voice of the devil, <laughs> okay? Uh, if you are sincerely asking that question, it is the right, it is a good question to ask. It's an important question to ask. That's not the spirit of the devil. But what is the spirit of the devil is the voice that says, God says that, Psh, that's stupid. That's dumb. So, and what we need to recognize is that when we are in an environment where God's ways are consistently mocked, we are susceptible to falling into sin. And I'm not saying that we should remove ourselves from all those environments, because if we did, then we would, we would just hide out in our homes and in church and, you know, never go anywhere else. We're supposed to be in the world. Um, but we need to be on guard. We need to be careful. We need to recognize that we, when we are saturated in an environment where people go, God says that, psh, that we are susceptible to being led astray. And we have to be on guard. Okay, a third insight this gives us into what leads us into sin. And this is the most important one. So if you, if you don't remember these other two, that's fine. Okay, but this is the one that I really want you to hold on to. What leads us into sin? Not trusting that God wants what's best for us. Not trusting that God wants what's best for us. 
What the serpent really attacked was Eve's trust in God's goodness. God said that if they ate from the tree, they would die. The serpent said, no, you won't die. But the serpent didn't just disagree with God. He went a step further, and he challenged the character and the motivation of God. Right? The serpent said, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, the reason that God has given you this law is because God wants to withhold something from you. God wants to keep something from you that you would really enjoy and that you would really like. And you know what? He's not really, he doesn't care about you. He's just all about himself. He's selfish. He wants to withhold stuff from you because he is selfish. He's all about himself. Now, what Eve should have said to the serpent is something like, why should I trust you? I don't even know you. I know God. I trust God. God made me. God put me in this garden. He provided me with all this good stuff and to enjoy. You, you should get lost. Right? But instead of doing that, Eve is persuaded by the serpent to doubt the goodness of God, to doubt that God really does have Eve's best interests at heart, that, that God really does care and love her. And what I want us to recognize this morning is that behind so many of our sins is a failure to really believe in the goodness of God, to really believe that he wants what's best. You know, we, we sin because we think that if we don't, we're going to miss out. You know, we think that if we, if we don't, we're going to miss out on real joy, real happiness, because we think that where the happiness really is found is in this forbidden fruit. But real joy, real life is not found in the forbidden fruit. And God is not at all opposed to our joy and our flourishing. God's all about that, right? When Jesus came to earth, he said, uh, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. God wants us to have full, meaningful, beautiful lives. He wants what's best. He doesn't want to withhold anything good from us. And if Eve had believed that, if she had trusted that God really was good, uh, things would have gone a lot better. And in our own lives, if we believe that God is truly good, things go a lot better. Finally, one more, uh, fourth insight that this gives us into what leads us into sin is thinking that we should be the judge of what's right and wrong. Thinking that we should be the judge. It says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. I feel like I can kind of put myself into Eve's shoes here and imagine what she's thinking. And it's something like this. Okay, the snake told me not to eat. Oh, no, 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 God told me not to eat. The snake told me to eat. Who's right? I know, I'll figure this out. Okay, let me just judge it on my, on my own. Okay, that tree there, it looks like a nice tree. I mean, it's really a beautiful tree. And uh, the fruit, I mean, it actually even looks like the fruit on the other trees. It looks like it would be good, good food to eat. And what's wrong with eating fruit off of a tree? I mean, honestly, what could possibly be wrong with that? There's thousands of trees in this garden, and we eat fruit off them all the time. There's nothing wrong with eating fruit off a tree. I, I, think, I'll, I think I'll have some. 
what Eve does there is she makes herself the judge of what's right and wrong. She allows her judgment to have primacy over God's. And that is something that every single one of us is tempted to do, especially when it's hard to see the rationale behind some of God's laws. But the difference between us and God is that God is omniscient, right? God is all-knowing. So he, he's the one that's really in the position to know what is truly right and what is truly wrong, what's truly good and what's not. And when we put ourselves in that position, it always yields problems. Uh, there's a book in the Old Testament called the Book of Judges. And there's a reoccurring theme throughout the Book of Judges, this line that you hear over and over again, which is, everybody did what was right in his own eyes. In other words, every person seemed to have made him or herself out to be the ultimate judge of right and wrong. And Judges is this especially ugly and chaotic time in Israel's history. Like some of the ugliest things that you're going to read in the Bible are in the book of Judges. It's not the kind of, it's not one of the books you want to read to your kids before they go to bed. Um, and that's because everybody did what was right in his own eyes. And that's what we see going on here is Eve does what's right in her own eyes. She judges. All right, so those are some of the factors that can lead us into sin. And they lead, they lead into Eve into sin. She takes some of the fruit, she eats it, and then she gives some to her husband, and he eats too. And a quick note I want to make is, it's easy to blame Eve for all of this, but I want us to notice how remarkably complicit Adam is in this. Uh, there's a little detail that's easy to miss, but it says uh, in verse 6, she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. And the little detail I want us to notice is, who was with her? Now, you might think, well, why even include those words in there? Because, of course, if Eve is going to hand fruit to Adam, they're going to be together, right? She can't teleport the fruit to him. So it seems like an unnecessary detail until you realize, actually, probably the reason that's included in there is to let us, uh, let us know Adam's been around the whole time, right? I, I, don't, I guess I can't say absolutely for sure, but I suspect that when the conversation was going on between the serpent and Eve, Adam was just over in the corner like, eh, that's not to get involved in that. I'll let them work that out. At the very least, I think what this is telling us is that when Eve took the fruit, Adam was right there and she gave it to him. Um, what, this is making, what this is making abundantly clear to us is that Adam wasn't just like hanging out and then Eve came over and gave him some fruit and he didn't know what it was and he just bit into it. You know? And then it was like, oh shoot, this was from the tree that we weren't supposed to eat from. The, this detail makes it very clear that Adam knew what he was doing. He was with her. Okay, he's, he's complicit. All right, now let's move on to the next thing that we learn here, uh, which is about the consequences of sin. Um, continuing in verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, 
I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, so I ate. The immediate result of sin is that both the man and the woman feel this need to cover up. They feel a need to hide themselves, both from God and from each other, right? Uh, before they were naked and they were unashamed, now they sew fig leaves together, which in order to cover themselves, which strikes me as a very desperate thing to do, you know? And what I want us to see is that this is what we do too. Uh, when we do wrong, our first instinct is to try to hide. It's to try to cover our shame. And we hide by lying, we hide by blame shifting, by covering things up. And as we do those things, our relationships suffer, both our relationship with God and our relationships with each other. So the first and primary consequence of sin is shame, of feeling the need to hide. And what grows out of that, number two, is broken relationships, both with God and with each other. You know, I think the clearest example of both of these is Adam's response, which I noticed got a little bit of laugh, which is appropriate. Uh, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit, and I ate it. You see the desperation in that, right? Adam is ashamed, and he's desperate to cover his shame. He's desperate to hide it. So what does he do? Well, he's so, he's so desperate to hide it that he sacrifices his two most important relationships, his relationship with God and his relationship with his wife. First, he throws his wife under the bus, and then he throws God under the bus. Is the woman the woman that you put me here with. And that is what sin does. It leads to that shame that we're desperate to cover, even if it means throwing our relationships under the bus. So these are what I see as the primary consequences of sin. But there's a bunch of other uh, consequences, more specific ones, uh, which which come in a series now, which are directed first to the snake, then to the woman, and then to the man. We're going to look at these really quickly, okay? But um, continuing in verse 14, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Now you might say, <clears throat> Ryan, this is really weird because it seems to be saying that animals, uh, a, a, a particular animal is cursed, a, a certain animal in the, in the animal kingdom is cursed, and it seems to be saying that snakes didn't have legs, or, yeah, snakes had legs before sin entered the world? And if, sin, if snakes had legs before sin entered the world, were they really snakes? Seems like that's a defining element of snakes. It's, this is confusing, right? I was always bothered by this. Um, well, let me be clear. The curse here is not on snakes, 
right? We already established this is not an ordinary snake, right? This is the devil or Satan. So the curse is on devil, on the devil or Satan, as we know him, that ancient serpent. So what does this mean? Well, these phrases here, uh, you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. These are ways of saying that the devil is going to be humiliated and defeated. Okay, crawl on your belly was a, is a metaphor for being humiliated. And same as eating dust. Have you ever heard the phrase, you know, somebody bit the dust? Okay, that means that they were defeated. So this is a, a metaphorical expression of the curse that is coming upon the devil. Uh, he is going to be humiliated and he is going to be defeated. That was so helpful for me when I realized that, that that was what these phrases mean, meant, because before then I was just trying to figure out how, how does it make any sense to view snakes as a cursed part of the animal kingdom? That is, that is so bizarre. Um, so hopefully that's helpful for you, like it was for me. And then in the next verse, we get this really strange, really cryptic, really enigmatic statement about how the devil is going to be humiliated and defeated. Um, how the devil is going to end up crawling on his belly. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. What in the world <laughs> is that talking about? Uh, we'll hold that thought because we're going we're gonna to talk about it, but we're going to talk about when we talk about the remedy of sin. And we've got just a couple more consequences to talk about, so we're going to get to it. But getting back to the consequences, verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. All right, we've got a few things to talk about here. Remember last week, we talked about how God gave this creation mandate to both men and women, and that men and women are, are, women are supposed to partner together in order to fulfill that creation mandate. Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Men and women are supposed to be partners in fulfilling this command, in ruling over creation. And what we see here is that once sin enters the picture, it becomes so much harder in multiple ways for men and women to fulfill that creation mandate. And one of the ways it becomes a lot harder is in this whole increasing in number part. Because now, uh, because of sin, child, childbirth is going to be painful. So if any of you have ever thought, you know what? it seems like this whole system of delivering children should be less painful and less dangerous than it is, as I have often thought. Um, you're actually, in a sense, right about that. <laughs> it, it, it shouldn't really be like this. It's like this because of sin. God's original design was not for it to be so painful and dangerous. Uh, but something about sin entering the world has changed that. Uh, so that's consequence number three, is pain and childbearing. And then another extremely unfortunate consequence, consequence number four, is that the partnership between man and woman is damaged. The partnership between man and woman is damaged. It says, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Okay, what does that mean? There's some 
debate over what exactly that word desire means, but the thing that I have found most compelling is that it means something like mastery over, to gain mastery over. And so I don't think it would be too far off to read this as, you will want to rule over your husband, and your husband will rule over you. And so basically what it's saying is that the relationship between the sexes is damaged because from now on, both sexes, rather than having the partnership that they're supposed to have in ruling over everything else, are now going to have this problem with trying to rule over each other. Um, and we're told that the one who is most of the time going to, run, going to win in that struggle is the man. Now, uh, before anyone accuses me or Genesis of being sexist, I think we can all agree that throughout history, typically, women have been oppressed more than men. Can we agree on that? And I think that has something to do with the last consequences of sin, the pain in childbearing. It is a biological fact that women are the ones who bear the children, right? And so there is an opportunity for men to oppress by virtue of that fact. <clears throat> and what I want us to notice is that what the Bible is saying is that this is a bad thing. Okay? This is part of the curse. Um, generally speaking, I think we can see this, at least on a societal level, women are typically more oppressed than men throughout history. It doesn't mean there aren't cases where men are dominated in some way by women or um, mistreated, but generally speaking, on a societal level, this is, this is the trend, and that's what Genesis tells us was going to happen. Um, now, I'm going to get on my soapbox just for a minute, <laughs> and I want to say I've noticed that Throughout the history of, of the church, there have been people who will say, who will point to this verse and say, see, man is supposed to rule over woman. Okay, man is supposed to dominate women. And <clears throat> I just want to say, this is the curse, right? This isn't the way it's supposed to be. Before the curse, you don't hear anything in there about man must rule over women. There's a partnership. There's, there's supposed to be, she's supposed to be a suitable helper. There's supposed to be partners in ruling over the rest of the creation. But it's not until the, the fall that this sort of disequilibrium enters the picture where there's this unhealthy relationship. And so it seems to me that the church should be the place that seeks to embody God's original intent for creation. Okay? Not to try and reinforce the fall. So, All right, continuing uh, in verse 17. To Adam, he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all of the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. So there we got two more consequences of sin, and I'm not going to belabor the point here, because actually if you've been around here for a while, you know we've referred to this, this passage a couple times recently. But two more consequences, survival is going to be a struggle. You know, before... It was all about ruling over creation and subduing the earth. Now it's going to be hard just to survive. Okay? And, and then also, physical death. 
That's a consequence. Before, that was, uh, that was not something that needed to be worried about in the garden. Now it is. And um, even though these words are spoken directly to the man, I think we can all agree this is both genders experience the consequences here. So Genesis 3, pretty sad chapter in the Bible, right? Maybe the saddest chapter in the whole Bible. And yet, there's great hope in it. I don't want to close on the sadness. I want to finish on an upswing here, on a hopeful note. Uh, I said we were going to talk about the remedy for sin. Well, here's the first clue of the remedy for sin. Verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. It's a little detail, but it's so important because what this is telling us is that God wants to cover Adam and Eve's shame. You know, Adam and Eve were so embarrassed after they sinned, and they were desperately trying to cover themselves with these fig leaves, which I'm sure did a terrible job. And God has pity on them, and he says, look, I'm going to help you out. Let's, let's cover you. And the good news is that both then and now, God wants to cover our shame. He does not want to leave us stuck in our shame. And there's a hint in this chapter of how God is going to do that, how he's going to cover our shame. Remember, I said we're going to return to this very strange and enigmatic verse, this very weird, weird line. Verse 15, what God says to the serpent, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Now, God is making a promise here. And it is is an incredible promise. And it's incredible in how specific that it is. God is promising that one day, through the offspring of a woman, a particular descendant is going to come. Okay, notice that the pronoun there, he, okay, it's, it's singular. A particular descendant is going to come, and that descendant is going to defeat and humiliate the devil. And God promises that he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, what is that? Okay, well, if you, if you want to kill a snake, right, one way to do it is you stomp on it. And what God is promising, kind of a strange promise, is, devil, you are going to be humiliated, you are going to be defeated, but when this descendant of the woman comes and actually stomps on you and destroys you, it's going to hurt. He's going to get bit, just like if you tried to stomp a snake with your heel, the snake might bite you in the process. And no one could have imagined it at the time, but we know how this promise was fulfilled. Uh, Because today, we know that this promise was fulfilled through Jesus, who was born of a woman and came to earth and defeated the devil and humiliated the devil. But in the process, it hurt, right? because of the cross. Um, It came with a price. The way I would put it is, when Jesus stomped on the devil, it looked like the cross. And I just want us this morning to take a moment to recognize how amazing is it that thousands of years before Jesus was born, uh, this verse, this promise was in Genesis. This cryptic, strange, weird uh, promise But I can't think of any other way to understand this promise other than what I just described. 
that a savior is going to come and he's going to destroy the devil, but in the process, it's going to hurt. It's going to involve sacrifice. It's going to involve pain. You can't make this stuff up. This is unbelievable. So, be encouraged. We, are, we have been led into sin, and we suffer consequences from sin, but we have a God who has crushed the head of the serpent, who has crushed the head of the one that led us into sin in the first place. And he loves us enough to cover our shame. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you uh, so much for that promise that you gave so long ago and for seeing it through, and for seeing it through uh, by means of your Son. Lord, I pray that uh, as, we, uh, as we trust in the covering that you offer us, as we embrace the grace that you have for us, that you would empower us and free us from sin, that you would help us to recognize the, the ways that we're led astray and to stand firm and not be ruled over by the devil. Uh, we pray that you would give us that strength, and we pray that as we face consequences of sin, uh, both in our own lives and in society as a whole, that you would help us to, to, to have great hope, to have great hope in the fact that you ultimately have conquered sin, and that one day um, the effects of it will be removed. And we thank you that you have crushed the head of the serpent. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>